Barilaro busted, corporations driving up inflation, Labor commits to 3030 by 2030 to fix the environment, and a COVID update. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am the happily married co-host of The Week on Wednesday, Ben Davison, coming to you live from sunny, sunny central Victoria on Wednesday, the 20th of July, 2022. And joining me from the Harbour City is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On and Guardian columnist extraordinaire, my wife, Van Batten. <laughs> Hi, Van. Oh, well, I'm as good as it can be, given the fact that uh, my beloved mother is back in hospital, of course, and you and I had a little quickie wedding and you are back in Victoria. So, I mean... <laughs> We put one foot in front of the other. That's the human story, isn't it? That's right. Like so many, so many people over these last couple of years, COVID and life has just been a series of interesting hurdles and challenges. But Van, can I just say that I think, you know, we started the podcast uh, during the pandemic. The pandemic was in full swing when we started the podcast in 2020. And I think it's actually helped us stay a little bit sane. <laughs> yeah, I think it has too. I think, you know, looking back on the months, literal months, that we spent trapped in our house in Victoria and then me getting on the train to come to Sydney where my mother got sick and getting trapped in her house for several months, I think the podcast has enabled you and I to connect with one another and connect with other people in ways that the very nature of an invisible killer virus flattening millions did not really enfranchise in other ways. Yeah, and I want to give a big shout out to everybody who's supported us so far on this journey. We're coming up. This is our 97th episode of the week on Wednesday. That doesn't include our weekend wraps, by the way. Uh, and we have hundreds of supporters who've gone to our buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday page who've contributed to help grow our audience and got some extra content along the way. We hope you've all found that um, enjoyable and fulfilling. Can I also say such a big thank you to the Buy Me A Coffee contributors because seriously, like Ben and I, are trying to use this podcast to have conversations that haven't been had in mainstream media about the kind of values that we hold, which, by the way, are mainstream values in this country. Like we are currently a a country with four out of six states governed by a centre-left party. Um, We are a country with a, a federal Labor government and Labor people have a right to talk about things from a labour perspective. And we're up against the big guys, our little podcast. Like there are some extremely well-funded outfits. Are there not, Ben? There are indeed, and a lot of them are backed by the Murdochs and the Bannons and the other unsavoury types of characters in the media empires around the world. But, Van, I also want to give a shout-out and thanks to those uh, listeners who have written to us because they have joined their union or gotten more active in their union as a result of engaging with The Week on Wednesday, talking to other people in the community online, uh, and we do have uh, a, a listener story. Somebody wrote to us during the week after we talked about CEO bonuses last week, which actually will feed into a, the story about uh, corporations and how they're driving up inflation because it was a, it's a real-life uh, on the ground shop floor experience, and this is someone who has told us they joined their union, uh, the CPSU, uh, in 2020 when they started listening to the week on Wednesday. So, shout out to everybody, and congratulations to everybody who did or has joined their union uh, after listening to us. If you haven't yet, you can do right, right now online AustralianUnions.org.au/slash wow. That's W-O-W or week on Wednesday. Shall we dive into this uh, this week's topics, Van, because there's a lot to cover and some of it is quite juicy, quite juicy. Well, yes, uh, the state of neoliberal South Wales, as we joke that it's called, called uh, where I 
grew up and where I occasionally reside, uh, caring for my mother, has had what I know you would describe as a typical New South Wales scandal. Now, rather a lot goes on in the in the uh, as you've also referred to it, the penal colony, and this week has been a particularly juicy week, even for New South Wales standards. Yes, so John Barillaro, the former leader of the New South Wales National Party and former Deputy Premier of New South Wales, the glorious penal colony by the sea, uh, has, of course, been in the news a lot recently because of what was a controversial appointment as a trade envoy to New York. Now, today... Revelations have come out from his former chief of staff. Now, I, I've been a chief of staff, not to a minister, but uh, at the ACTU, and I was amazed, amazed by this kind of commentary. Uh, clearly, these two men have very different views about what a deputy premier's role is. And I have to say, former chief of staff Mark Connell uh, probably has views more aligned to my own, and that is that the role of Deputy Premier is to serve the people of the state of New South Wales, whether they are convicts or not, <laughs> and, and and not to create very high-paying jobs for himself. Because it turns out, according to Mark McConnell, that John Barillaro created the role of New York Trade Envoy uh, with the intention of taking it for himself he created that role despite there already being such a role in California. Uh, he created that role despite the fact there was a potential vacancy in London that he could have taken, swearing about the position in London and, and saying that he would not take that. Instead, he would make them create a role in New York and explicitly made the New South Wales government create that role because that's where I'm off to. Now, that's a pretty shocking set of revelations. Pretty oh, it, this whole Barillaro story is amazing because, of course, John Barillaro's fairly, uh, you know, infamous and undignified reign as the Deputy Premier of New South Wales was full of questionable incidents, I believe is the term. Um, he drew the ire, of course, of friendly Geordies and, and that outfit fairly notoriously who were on him about mm land deals that made koala habitat, uh, that wrecked koala habitat in New South Wales, all kinds of dodgy business that was going on. And, of course, um, there was a long-running legal dispute between Barillaro and Friendly Geordies where, you know, he accused them of all kinds of things. And there was the infamous episode where one of the Friendly Geordies crew so, like literally ran into Barillaro and handed him some legal papers that Barillaro had demanded they send to him. And Barillaro, the next thing the boys knew was that uh, the counter-terrorism police from the fixated persons unit had been deployed uh, to arrest one of them. So you had a university undergraduate who'd literally, and a court found this, only handed papers to Barillaro, yeah. dragged off, questioned, his family terrorised the whole thing. His I dog mean, got crushed is what my understanding as well. Yeah, his mother mysteriously ended up on the ground. The allegation is that she was put there by members of the fixation, fixated persons unit. Uh, mobile phones were like removed. The whole thing was extremely dodgy. And if you haven't seen the Friendly Geordies video about that particular raid, and it was, there was nothing to it. Like there was no case for the boys to answer um, with that whole counter-terrorism squad. I mean, it was terrifying, genuinely terrifying. And this is the kind of stuff that Barillaro has become infamous for. And, of course, the, the story with this trade envoy position was that a position was created in New York to represent the interests of New South Wales trade. It was advertised, a person um, successfully interviewed for the role. That person was told that they had the job and told to celebrate. There are text messages that say this. And then all of a sudden this person was unselected and John Barillaro, who's uh, skills and competencies in this area are somewhat questionable, and I'll get to that in a moment, was mysteriously given the job. And, of course, there's now an inquiry going, why is John Barillaro, of all people, 
getting a 500, that's half a million dollar a year job, just one about New York. And of course, this is what's come out. He didn't want to work in California and he certainly didn't want to work in London. And as far as I'm concerned, John, as somebody who spent a good decade of my life in London, if you don't appreciate it, you don't deserve to go anywhere. Absolutely. Well, Barilaro has, of course, uh, called Connell's evidence, and this is a quote, fictitious, false, and only serves as a reminder as to why we had to part ways. I think the last part of that statement is probably true. It serves as a reminder as to why we all had to part ways with John Barilaro. Uh, And Van, your point is absolutely spot on. I mean, the job was offered verbally and a copy apparently of a brief signed by then Premier Gladys Berejiklian was provided to the preferred candidate who is, as I understand it, quite a well-known New South Welsh uh, businesswoman and former public servant by the name of Jenny West. Uh, and then she was told by another public servant when when being told she wasn't actually going to be going to New York that the job was uh, now a, and I quote, a present for someone. This is this is a remarkable. Now, Barilaro has already withdrawn uh, or resigned. I, I don't really know, really. I don't think he'd actually got to New York, so probably withdrawn is the right term, but saying that the media coverage had made the position untenable. The media coverage. <laughs> the media coverage. Not, not the fact that somebody else had been given the job, and then told they had been ungiven the job because it was being gifted as a present to someone else. That's not what made it untenable. The absolute stench of crookedness that radiates around this like socks in the room of a teenage boy, that's not the issue. The issue is the media coverage. Oh, John. So there's another interesting tidbit about this particularly awful story on um, on the Michael West website today. Now, Michael West is somebody for whom Ben and I have a great admiration, um, and he runs this investigative business, a business investigative media, investigative business media website. Very good at finding things. The Michael West website, I've got to say, a project absolutely worth supporting. And Callum Foote, who's one of the journalists there, revealed that there's been a bit of a redraft of John Barillaro's LinkedIn CV, where John Barillaro's man of the people, I'm such a rigid real Aussie bloke, qualifications as a builder and whatever, have been replaced with these qualifications from something called, I think, the Churchill Institute, which gives you a certificate based on your lived experience. <laughs> so he's apparently now got all these qualifications because of his lived experience. I wish you could all see. I Ben and oh I do God. a little Van, it's it finally they've found a way to give someone a degree from the University of Life. Oh my god! <laughs> I wish I wish because Ben and I have a little video screen going when we do the podcast <laughs> remotely from one another, and I wish you could see the look on Ben's face at well, the moment. It's just, it's just legitimized half of Facebook. You know, like there's now. It basically, there's a bunch of men on Facebook who who's qualifications are finally going to be recognised thanks to the Churchill, and I quote that, Institute from their School of Life. Yeah. I wonder I wonder if they have a, a, a Department of Hard Knocks as well. Yeah, it's- yeah, yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah, so it, it accredits you on the basis of your life experience. I'm not familiar with this institution. I'm sure it's very reputable. I'd be interested to find out um, whether it is a private college. I I suppose it perhaps is, and that whether you pay fees to be accredited on the I just want to know what that whole process is like. As I said, I'm sure it's honourable. I've never encountered this institute before. I mean, yeah, having gone, be, having gone to several real universities, I probably didn't need to. So, but I love it. It accredits your life experience. And so Michael West's people found it. And he also mentions, and I love this, um, that he is he's founded the company Barillaro and Associates. Um, of which he is the the sole director, apparently, and company secretary. Callum Foote made the point in his article that that there seems to be a barrel arrow, but associates are somewhat thin on the ground. Um, And, of course, he has done a governance course at the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Now, Ben, you are are a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. 
which is interesting because John Barilaro only notes uh, his relationship with that organization as a member of the Institute of Company Directors. Would you would you care to explain to people, I mean, this is niche stuff, but if you get the joke, it's hilarious. It is pretty niche. but uh, the, So you, you can pay a fee to be a member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, but you, in order to become, and you get a, you get a, a post-nominal, M-A-I-C-D, uh, but you have to actually do the company director course uh, and pass it uh, and get the award that they give you a certificate to you to become a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, a GAICD. And if you do, you know, enough courses and you stay a member long enough, you can become a fellow of the Australian Institute and become FAICD and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, so to become a member is not actually particularly difficult. You simply pay the fee. You don't even have to do a course. Uh, so <laughs> that seems a bit like John Barilaro is trying to pad out his LinkedIn page. Look, people do it and, and by, you know, Real life experience is absolutely critical. There's no question about that. I don't want people to think that I'm belittling that. I know you're not either, man, but there is a, there is something to be said for being honest about what you really bring to the table. And I have to say, uh, it doesn't appear as though John Barilaro at any stage in, in the time that I've been aware of him as a human being has been honest with anyone about no, what he's doing. Really, it is, it's kind of an amazing story. I mean, and this is, the, this is what's so frustrating. Like, you know, these appointments by governments, this is a whole part of government that is extremely important and which a lot of the public don't understand and don't see. So governments appoint people to boards. You and I have served on government boards, but yes. you and I didn't <laughs> didn't receive government board appointments as a gift. It's actually for the rest of us quite a grueling process of application and well, interview and competitiveness and qualification. Well, what I, I was going to say, what I was going to say, Van, is that um, you know. We've both been fortunate to serve on Victorian state government boards, and and that's there's a website it's called getonboard.vic.gov.au, uh, and you can see the board vacancies, and you can see the process, and you can see the position description and the qualifications they're looking for, and the kinds of life experiences they're looking for as well. There is actually a, there is room for life experience in in uh, in governance. There should be, uh, and you can go through that process and those processes can take months and months and months. Uh, <laughs> but I have to say I've never come across a situation where there's been a public process, candidate's been chosen, candidate's been offered the role, candidate starts looking for accommodation in another country to do the role, candidate is told, oh, actually it's a gift for somebody else. Candidate reads about appointment of former deputy premier to a role which even with the padded LinkedIn page, you've got to question whether John Barilaro is, you know, really the man for the job. Look, clearly there's a long way to run on this. I, I see online that Chris Minns and Labor in New South Wales are not going to let this go and you can understand why. I mean, the whole thing does reek. It's a pretty, it's a pretty bad look for New South Wales you got to think too, like I, I, to some degree, I feel bad for businesses in New South Wales that have been operating in America or trying to operate in America. You know, firstly, they would have thought, oh, well, the, the New South Wales government has an office in California. Well, maybe we'll start to try and do a business in the US through there. Oh, no, they're moving it to New York. Okay. Oh, they're going to appoint Jenny West. Great. Oh, hang on a minute. No, they're not. Then there's a year where nothing seems to be happening. Then, hang on, oh, John Barilaro has been appointed. Oh, well, that's a different thing. We'll need to get a lobbyist firm. You know, imagine trying to be a, new, a business in New South Wales, expanding and exporting Australian goods and services into the United States, <laughs> trying to deal with this. I mean, this is, there are, there are real life consequences, not just for Jenny West and John Barilaro, but for, for businesses and, and workers in New South Wales. Yeah. It, and it's, like it's a problem 
You know what I mean? Like, obviously, I'm no fan of the Liberal Party. I reject liberal and conservative ideology. You know, that's not where my framework values are. That's not to say every liberal liberal is a, you know, terrible appointment in a terrible position. I've been on boards with former liberal senators and found common ground and found that exercise of negotiation actually really powerful and leading to some excellent tangible outcomes which are good for the overwhelming majority of the population. It should work that way. There have been some absolutely standout individuals of principle and value who have brought their life experience and skills in government and everywhere else to positions of, you know, government appointment in the community, even if they are from a political party that I wouldn't vote for if I was on fire. However, this is not one of those cases. It's John Barillaro. It's John Barillaro and his slightly questionable LinkedIn CV. I mean, what kind of person do you have to be for investigative business press to go, oh, yeah, just have a look at his LinkedIn page? You know what I mean? Like, it's a bit of a dead giveaway. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It, it is pretty bad. And you're right. You know, neither of us, and I don't think anybody who is critical of this situation is saying that there isn't space for people of different political stripes on government, community, um, corporate boards. In fact, that diversity is important. That diversity of ideas does uh, create better outcomes. All the Harvard Review uh, articles talk about Diversity of ideas, diversity of experience, diversity of background, all those things coming together to, to create better outcomes. But it is the, the, the kind of undermining of the process, the, the, the language that is being reported that he used about this was just such an entitlement, um, mindset and such a, such a, just a disgraceful approach to, you know, he was in public office. He was there to serve the people of New South Wales and really what he was doing, uh, it appears that what he was really trying to do was feather his own nest and create a landing landing place for himself when he was- In New York for $500,000 a year. That's not a landing place. Like that's a, <laughs> that's a silk-lined nest. That's a penthouse. That's a penthouse. Look, you know, let's, let's it's move It's a holy pad, not a landing spot, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Let's move on because, as I say, this will have some way to run. Uh, I think John Barillaro has underestimated the public's level of interest in and intrigue in his own intrigues. But, Van, there has been some bad news and some good news this week for the environment, and I want to start with the good news. I know we normally do good news at the end of the show, but the good news this week is Labor has committed to the 3030 by 2030 plan. Now, people who are regular listeners to the week on Wednesday may remember that Van and I discussed how President Joe Biden in the US had committed the United States to pre- preserving, reserving, protecting 30% of its land mass and 30% of its territorial waters by 2030. This is part of a major international series of agreements for all countries to try and sign up to do this. And, of course, you know, in Australia, we have around a quarter of our land mass already protected, uh, and this will now see that increase by, I think you said 20%. Was that right, Ben? Yeah. So if we go to a 30% in total, so if we're protecting 30% of our sea and 30% of our land, at the moment, because 25% are protected, this represents a 20% more of the amount that's already there. There's some fun maths for you. <laughs> um, and look, it's, and look, I'm more than happy for my maths to be corrected. It's been a very long day. Um, but it, look, it's necessary. The fact is that 2030 is only eight years away. So this is quite an, an ambitious target. These are words that we've been using a lot recently. And I certainly refer everybody back to last Sunday's episode of the week on Wednesday weekend wrap, where we talked about, you know, the nature, the the nature of targets. um, If you want more discussion on that, but certainly it's great. And it is super good news that the new Albanese Labor government has got very ambitious targets around land and water protection because, and this is the sad part, 
the revelations in the State of the Environment report are just devastating. So this is a report that had been commissioned, but it happens, um, it's a regular report that comes out. I think it comes out every year or two years. Um, There had been some really good things done with this report. It's the first time the report has been co-authored by an Indigenous author. Um, There was Indigenous uh, contributions in every chapter of the report. Certainly there was a desire to talk about Indigenous land management, Indigenous knowledge, and how Australia can be cared for using these ancient knowledge systems that are that are totally sophisticated and credible way of managing land. Um, uh, but it is dire, like it is terrifying. And of course, the previous government who had commissioned this report suppressed it. They didn't want it to come out before the last election. Um, understandably, if you've seen these contents. And Tanya Plibersek warned Australians that it was pretty shocking and reports indicate that that the new government was very surprised by the level of deterioration in the environment that has taken that took place under the nine years of Liberal government. And mm-hmm. it is really, it's really terrifying. Well let's let's go through some of the some of the key points and and, and we won't cover off everything because it is a it is a comprehensive document and Tanya Plibersek's National Press Club speech goes into some detail and people can check that out uh, on the National Press Club website or, or on um, ABC. I'm pretty sure iView has them on catch-up as well. But there are some some key points that we've drawn out here that I think are, are particularly relevant. There are now more non-native plant species in Australia than there are native ones. Uh of the 450 gigalitres of water for the environment promised under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. This was a plan that the Conservatives uh, really launched to a lot of fanfare, tried to pretend was going to be a huge win for environment, irrigators, uh, everybody. So of the 450 gigalitres that had been promised, only two, only two gigalitres has actually been delivered. The number of threatened species has increased by 8%. Up to 78% of Australia's coastal salt marshes have been lost since colonisation and they continue to deteriorate. Australia's lost more mammal species than any other continent. That I cried. I literally cried when I heard that. I'm sorry, salt marshes, and I'm sorry, native plant species. I just want the native plant species and the salt marshes to know that they were part of the the incremental passage towards grief. But to find out Australia, like my childhood, your childhood, the very Mm -hmm. notion of what it is to be Australian is based in this awareness that we live in this unique place with these unique animals you know, this incredible national pride that comes from the fact that we're on a landmass that has produced these extraordinary creatures and yeah. to think that we have lost more of them than any other continent is yeah. devastating. It is devastating. It is absolutely devastating. And and it goes on. I, I mean, 6.1 million hectares of mature forests have been cleared since 1990. Uh, we know we know that there are sustainable forestry practices, and yet somehow or another we're still clearing mature forest uh, at, an, at an extraordinary rate. Uh, that marine heat waves have caused mass coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef in 2016, 2017, and 2020. Now there was another mass coral bleaching in March this year. Of course, the report doesn't cover this year. But that's four since 2020, 2016, I should say, since 2016. Uh, changes in land use mean that Australia has the third largest cumulative loss of soil organic carbon in the world behind only China and the United States. Now, I'm like, oh, well, what does that mean? It means loss- that we're not capturing carbon in soil. That's right. That's, that's what it means. So it means that, I mean, there are ways of doing agriculture 
regenerative agriculture, which we've talked about on this show before, where some of the world experts in a form of agriculture, which looks at soil as a place where you capture carbon and farming practices, agricultural practices that are not only better for the soil and better for carbon capture, but better for crops and better for farmers, um, they... The, the loss of, of soil and soil cover and I mean it's just it's horrific it is like it is like something from a, an end of days dystopian movie what is going on as an Australian I just I feel hurt I feel actually hurt that governments of this country have not shown stewardship to this beautiful place where we live or, or care and have allowed sort of a you know, a regime of oh, act first, deal with it later when it comes to agricultural practices or forestry practices or irrigation practices that somehow if you're the first person who turns up and does something, well, you're allowed to keep doing it indefinitely until the system reaches absolute crisis. And we have to look at preventative legislative environments. The good news is that is what Tanya Plibersek is talking about. Absolutely. And I, and I want to make the point, you know, I find it disgraceful that there were people claiming that it was demotion of Tanya Plibersek to receive the environment portfolio, which had formerly been held by Terry Butler, who unfortunately did not retain her seat in the last election. And it was the, oh, well, you know, Tanya off to the boondocks. This is literally one of the most important portfolios with the largest level of immediate crisis that the government is facing. And I am so grateful that a highly experienced policymaker and representative like Tanya Plibersek, who enjoys stratospheric popularity in this country, I am so grateful that she is in this role um, to give it the heft and the the imprimatur of imprimatur of seriousness that it requires for for repair. For repair. We literally have to repair our own country. Do you want to go through the list of, um, uh, I mean, sure. I'm just looking at our notes, 19 Australian ecosystems are showing signs of collapse or near collapse. Yes, so the climate is poor and deteriorating. So these are ratings in the report. Extreme events, poor and deteriorating. Land and soil, poor and deteriorating. Coasts, poor and deteriorating. Inland water, poor and deteriorating. Um Coast uh, marine uh, is is actually good, but deteriorating. Um, our air quality is very good, but deteriorating. One suspects that, when, given this report was done in 2020, 21, uh, during COVID, uh, and there were no cars on the roads and factories were, were not working, one suspects that had an impact. The urban environment is good and neutral. That's the best outcome, really. And Antarctica is good, but deteriorating. And Van, I just want to say too, this is not the only environmental report that the Morrison government suppressed during its time. People who listened to the week on Wednesday in 2020 will know that you and I spoke with Terry Butler, who was at the time Shadow Environment Minister, about the Samuels report, which talked about uh, the, a range of things that were needed to be done uh, there were a range of recommendations uh, and that the Morrison government simply had not responded to Graham Samuel, the former uh, head of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, a very well-known and respected uh, apolitical figure, I guess. Some would say he's actually quite a Tory figure. But nonetheless, Morrison government didn't do anything with that report. Now, Tanya Plibersek, as you say, has picked up the mantle from Terry Butler, who prior to the election was talking about implementing some of these recommendations. Tanya Plibersek is saying that she will implement them, uh, that that they will uh, they will respond in full before the end of the year to the report, uh, and that they will introduce laws uh, early next year to, among other things, create an environmental protection agency. I think most Australians would be shocked to learn that we don't have a Commonwealth Environmental Protection Agency in this country, that even America has an EPA. And in fact, it was introduced heard, by Richard Nixon. Yes. That in fact, if you've heard the term EPA, chances are you've heard it in an American context because there isn't one federally in Australia. 
Oh, it just breaks my heart, Ben. It just breaks my heart. You know that this is the, I mean, I got politicised through environmental issues, as you well know. Yeah. You know, and um, I can't, just this idea that this rare and beautiful, incredible place that was sustained by human custodianship by Australia's First Nations people for tens of thousands of years that, you know, since colonisation, it's been a path to destruction and that destruction has ramped up over the past few years in an era where we are supposed to know better, we are doing worse. And that's what's heartbreaking. That's what's genuinely heartbreaking. And any opportunity to participate in the preservation and defence of just the natural glory of this country should be taken up. I think I think it's just incredibly important. Yes, no, I think I think we all agree on that front, and I think also, just to be perfectly frank and perfectly blunt and honest, the the last decade of of hiding the truth, of avoiding public scrutiny. I mean, you know, we talked about John Barilaro earlier, but the these environmental reports clearly show that governments know, they're aware, and a conservative government in power will not act to do what is necessary to be stewards. They're not interested in stewardship. They are more interested, there's more of them cut from the same cloth as John Barilaro than there are cut from the cloth of Tanya Plibersek. And thankfully, we now have a Commonwealth Labor government, and as you said before, more Labor state and territory governments around the country than there are conservative ones. Uh, and hopefully, we'll continue to see more plebiscites and less Barilaros in charge uh, of the future of this country when it comes to, well, it comes to everything really, but particularly the environment, our air, our water, our land, our soil, our animals, our flora and our fauna. It's so important. So, I just want to say this to all the koala killers out there, we are coming for you. That's right. Damn it. Damn it. Look, we need to move on because there are a couple oh, of- Oh, happy news about inflation, Ben. Oh, <laughs> that'll, that'll put the joy back into my voice. Look, oh, I think inflation. I actually, Woo! I actually think this is happy news about inflation if you can have- Happy news about inflation. Because, Rita, I married him, yes. <laughs> because, man, so often we hear about inflation and immediately we hear about why we need wage restraint and why we have to avoid a wage price spiral and why workers have to not demand pay rises and and sort of the evils of, of workers and communities demanding a more. Well, turns out, as you and I have been saying for the entire time we've been running this podcast, inflation in this country, in Australia, right now, is not driven by workers demanding unfair pay increases. In fact, wage contribution to inflation is almost zero. It is almost zero. It is profits that are driving inflation. Inflation is 5.1% now. It might get as high as 7%. And profits are accounting for 60%, not, not costs, not increased energy. 60% of the inflationary burden is coming from profits, corporations taking excess profits out of our economy, the economy that you and I and the people listening to our podcast create through their labor, through their skill, through their cooperation, through their community-mindedness, ripped out by corporations. Yeah, I mean, just so people understand, that, that one of the many mechanisms through which this happens is price gouging. Corporations make more profits by charging you more for things that they know that you can't live without. And there are no controls on this process. They will charge you precisely what they can get away with. Now, the way that capitalism is supposed to work, this is part of just the fantasy theory. Uh, just capitalists... Capitalists are the world's great fiction writers. You have never met a cult so devoted to fantasy. Literally, people who think, who genuinely believe in the flying spaghetti monster are more 
in touch with reality than your standard neoliberal capitalist zealot. Because the way things are supposed to work is that you have all this open competition in the economy. And if, if you know, hot dogs are too expensive, well, some plucky entrepreneur is going to come along and disrupt the hot dog market by offering a $5 hot dog and therefore to compete, the makers of the $10 hot dog will bring their prices down. Like capitalists actually believe this. They will tell you that this is a real thing over and over and over again, that, you know, if, if prices are too high, that just means an opportunity for market competition. But, of course, that's not what's been going on. That's not how... No. The markets work. And there's a story out today that's talking about Qantas driving up prices at the same time it was receiving government subsidies and government bailouts. Well, no way, Qantas. Talking about Qantas while it was unlawfully sacking workers, while it was trying to cut and terminate staff agreements, driving up prices of flights, as well as handing out bonuses to its executives. Now, this is this is where we are at in modern Australian capitalism after a decade of mismanagement and misrule by Morrison and his cronies. We have we have inflation that is being driven by price gouging. And it's interesting to note, Van, there was a time, there was a time not so long ago when prices were regulated. Yes, I believe there might have been a prices and income accord. Am I correct? Indeed. There was a prices and income accord. There were price regulatory mechanisms. Now, Andrew Lee is the Minister for Competition, and there is discussion, I know, or we've seen it in the press, that there needs to be greater competition. And I'm not going to poo-poo the idea of greater competition, but it's very hard, it's very hard and very expensive, very capital-intensive and, and requires a great number of highly skilled workers, as anyone who's had a flight delayed recently knows, uh, to start an airline. It's not, <laughs> it's not something you can do quickly. Yeah, and, and you, you need rather a lot of money to start an air, airline. That's right. Like, it's, when we talk about capital, like I realise that not everybody's okay with the terms. For those who of you who are, that's awesome. But when we talk about capital, we're talking about Reserves of cash, yeah, right? and you need the capital. You need the reserves of cash in order to occupy any of that corporate space. Even getting back to our hot dog vendor, right? That you know the plucky hot dog vendor is going to go. Oh well, I'm only going to charge five bucks if you're charging ten. That means that before they've sold a single newly priced hot dog, they have to own the hot dog stand, source the meat, find the buns, get the onions, you know, all of those things. That requires money and that's before you've, you've got a single dollar. The entire system is geared up around those with capital, may we call them the capitalists, determining what economic relations are going to look like and deciding what they can be bothered competing for and what they won't. And I think, Van, there's some really good quotes here, and it shows the, 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 the importance of who is in government when these things are happening. Because Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer of Australia, the Labor member for Rankin, I believe, uh, has slammed the business lobbyists who've been trying to push this idea that we are going to have a wage spiral and wages are causing inflation. And his quote, and I'm going to read the whole thing, is, Wages are not the reason why we have got this inflation, and so I don't share a number of the concerns which have been raised about some kind of destructive wage spiral. We've still got real wages falling quite substantially. We want to see those wages growing in a sustainable way, and that means by making the economy more productive so that there are lots of win-wins for employers and employees, and we get living standards up. I don't share some of those kind of quite dire warnings about all of that in reference to wages. The Australia Institute's report that did this research, Richard Dennis, a firm friend of the week on Wednesday, has called it a price profits spiral. He Can says, I read his quote? I love yeah, his quote. It. It's a shortage of competition, not a shortage of skilled labour that is driving up the cost of living in Australia. It's a shortage of competition. And he says the corporate sector needs to tighten its belt. And again, you know, we're gonna we're gonna use Qantas 
as an example a little bit now again, but there's another example I want to get to in a second. But Qantas has been handing out bonuses, much to the disgust of I think just about every Australian, up to $4 million it's paid out in bonuses. Talking about not tightening your belt. Here's a company that took $2 billion in taxpayer money who is jacking up prices on people who need to fly, often for work. Yes, sometimes for holidays, but often for work to be productive. Jacking up prices has essentially driven out the competition in the form of Virgin, driven out competition in the form of Rex, has lobbied its pants off to be the national carrier in inverted commas, and has overseen unlawful sackings, smashed workers' power, smashed workers' living standards, smashed service levels, and it's handed out, and there's a little graphic that the Daily Mail, not necessarily the publication we often refer to, uh, a little graphic it's made of four Qantas executives um, receiving. Uh, it's interesting when you look at it because there's two men and two women and the two men receive bigger bonuses than the two women. So even, even at that level, there's still a gender inequality. Uh, but anywhere between $985,000 and $1.22 million, including the person who oversaw the unlawful sacking. Yes, that person got a million-dollar bonus. You know, just when we talk about inflation in this country, we need to understand what's driving it, and it's greed, not, the, not working people. No. And as far as I'm concerned, if you complain about a wage spiral for the people who work for you, that foregoes your entitlement to a bonus. Absolutely. Because this is the same people who, oh, yes, well, workers pay demands are out of control. Now is not the time. The time is not yet ripe. Are the same people either getting these obscene bonuses or the ones approving them for other people? It is rank. And it's like, yeah, hang on. How about we just collectivize your bonus, buddy? And then you and I, we've discussed before Justin Hems, who's another classic example. $144 million of wage underpayments. Has the, the federal court has found that his company, the company that he runs, has underpaid people by $144 million. He is arguing that he shouldn't have to repay that money. Why? Because he's used it to buy more venues. Now, unless those workers are all getting a share in that company equal to the value of their stolen wages, quite frankly, the idea that bosses are allowed to use workers' wages to prop up their company, either through by expanding it or by paying out bonuses or by paying out dividends or simply profiting up the profit, profit line is a dangerous destructive thing for our society and people like Alan Joyce and Justin Hems. And I want to tell the story about CSL because we talked about the CEO of CSL last week uh, and he his name is Paul Perot, I'm going to say. I, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his Perot, name. yeah. His name correctly. Yep, Perot. Um, he's the second highest paid CEO in Australia. And I would put him Next in the to, same- I believe, Alan Joyce from Qantas. Am I right? Correct. No, no, Alan is no longer the highest paid. Oh, no. But, you know, this is the thing. Alan Joyce Stocks is like- in the chairman's lounge. Absolute tantrums. <laughs> Alan has been highest paid in the past and probably will be again when his share options mature. And, of course, they won't mature until the share price is high enough to almost make him a billionaire. But these sorts of people- have devastating real-life impacts on ordinary working people. And we heard from a listener this week, Van, didn't we? Yeah, we did. And thank you so much for writing to us, listener, and other listeners who tell us about these things because sometimes these things don't go reported and sometimes they certainly don't go reported from the positions of people who actually work there. So this is an absolutely shocking story. Ben, I'm going to hand it to you because of the precision and anger that you bring to your discussion of uh, actual numbers. So. We talk a lot about strike action and collective action, and when we hear about them, hear about workers taking action, we like to tell those stories. This is a, a worker who wrote to us, and I'm not going to identify this person because we all know that bad bosses 
exhibit bad behaviour towards employees. And undoubtedly, uh, they would say there's some sort of policy breach. But this person wrote to us saying, was listening to the podcast on the drive home from work and heard my CEO mentioned with regards to 58 million take-home pay he received. You may find it interesting that they're only offering us a three and a half pay rise for the next three years. Now, remember, inflation is 5.1. It may go as high as seven. The CEO of CSL is offering workers a pay increase that is below inflation. At the same time, he has become the second highest paid CEO in the country on nearly $60 million a year. This person goes on to say, I work at CSL in Broadmeadows. We're currently negotiating our new agreement. And while Paul Perot is getting close to $60 million, we're offered just a yearly 3.5% increase for the next three years. This is apparently their, quote, best and final offer. They will also give us a $1,000 sign-on bonus to, quote, help with the cost of living. And that they will not budge on increasing the 3.5% and no back pay if we vote no. So the conditional $1,000 is really to make us shut up and vote yes straight away rather than from the goodness of their hearts to help us with the massive increase in cost of living. The unions here are doing their best and have worked with us to vote no. We're only strong if we stay united, but I'm not sure if we can continue that here. But if we stay united enough to vote no multiple rounds, we'll hopefully we'll get what is fair. At least with my co-workers, I've brought up the CEO's obscene pay and talked with them about why I'm voting no to the proposed EA. I've been part of the CPSU because of this show to promote the union and spark conversations about joining. I think this show is doing a wonderful service to the community. Thank you so much for everything you both do. And sorry if the email is a bit of a rant or a bit too long. Now, I don't think it's a bit of a rant or a bit too long. And I have, as I said, excluded some parts of it that I concerned might have identified this particular individual. But it's so important that workers stand together because what do we know? We know that the CEO of CSL is getting paid nearly $60 million. We know that CSL is only going to offer staff a pay increase well below, well below inflation. We know that even that is conditional on there being a yes vote. Now, those workers are standing up. They are standing together. They are getting organised and the CPSU, their union, is helping them be organised to say no. It's so important. And, you know, we said it it at the start of the show, I'm going to say it again. Whatever industry you're in, you know, CSL is a former Commonwealth entity. It doesn't matter where you work. There is a union for you. Join today, australianunions.org.au slash well, that's W-O-W for week on Wednesday. Because unless you're prepared to stand together with your fellow workers, this is going to continue to happen. Wages will go backwards, living standards will drop, and the wealthiest, greediest people in our society will continue to exercise their power over us and take more than they have earned. And, Van, we cannot allow that to happen. No, we can't. It's just appalling. Like it's, yeah, it's these const, this constant hypocrisy and the lack of self-awareness, you know, this idea that I'm sure Mr. What's he on? Bazillion dollars a year. Years. 58 million a year. I'm sure he thinks he's really earned that. Like I'm quite sure he thinks that, oh, well, you know, I've put the effort in. I really deserve the $58 million I get for running this business. And to begrudge the people who actually generate the wealth wages that will even keep pace with inflation, you can imagine he's like, oh, well, you know, we've got to keep wages under control. Like we can't have a wage cost blowout. I mean, that could really affect our bottom line. And at no point has he gone, 
what do I really need $58 million for? Like what can you legitimately buy with $58 million? Quite honestly, like what does he want, an island? Like you could, if he's been working there a couple of years, he could probably already afford a couple. <laughs> and it's just like, what kind of per- I just always think, what kind of person are you? What kind of person are you that you justify this to yourself and still think you're probably a good person or a competent person oh, or no, any of those things? There's no question. And culturally as Australians we have to break ourselves out of this uh, this sort of psychological shackle, right? Alan Joyce is a villain. Alan Joyce is a villain. Justin Hems is a villain. Paul Perot is a villain. The fact that Paul Perot runs CSL, which makes blood products, does not make him a good person. CSL makes profit from the sale of those products. He has received billions in government subsidies during the course of the pandemic. It has driven up the stock price of CSL to record highs, and he has cashed in. He has been given free shares that are worth millions of dollars. And now he turns around and says, my workers have to take a real pay cut. Alan Joyce took billions from taxpayers and unlawfully sacked people. When when confronted by this fact, he has said, well, we disagree with the federal court. Alan, you disagree with the federal court. Frankly, son, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. That's the law. Justin Hems has used the stolen wages of his workers to build an empire and people write fluff pieces. These men get positions on public speaking circuits. They they give lectures on how to be a leader. They put on advisory panels in New South Wales. These are not good people. These are villains. And until we culturally wake up, the fact that people like this are destroying the fabric of our society and doing so just to line their own pockets and rip them off those platforms, bring them down from those pedestals. Until we do that, they will continue to steal from us. They will continue to secretly mock us with their phony lectures on leadership and community and what it means to be a great corporate titan. And frankly, Van, I've had enough. You're so cool. You're so cool. I went on a rant. I can't stand it. I'm in. I'm in. I signed the contract. I'm in for life. (laughs) I'm totally pro this. This is is what won my heart. And I really want to thank... I really want to thank that worker who wrote to us and I want to encourage other workers to write to us as well because it's these real stories that have to get out there more. And and I've been encouraged to see how many news outlets are keeping a focus on Qantas and are trying to tell the stories. Yes, I'd like to to reach out to our comrades at Sky News who backed in Ben and mine's position on the, the just the absolute flagrant exploitation going on in that particular company, um, I was amazed to to find that I was one of my tweets had been used in a Sky News piece, and I'm just like Australia. If Sky News and I are on the same page, it's a problem. Like yeah. it's a problem. It's a problem for us all. But we should move on because we're trying to keep this slightly more yeah. efficient. Um, now that we don't have the excuse of coronavirus to be like ranty and loose anymore. Um, coronavirus is, of course, continuing and hospitalizations are continuing to climb, Ben. Yes, there are now over 5,200 people in hospitals around Australia. That equals just over 8.4% of all hospital beds. Uh, the numbers are pretty shocking in each state. Yep. Um, third doses are only at 54.35%. I don't understand. Did you not hear us when Ben and I were sick? Did you not hear how sick we were? We can do reenactments of how sick we were, or you can go to my TikTok. I'm just Van Batam on TikTok and look at just the little preview screens where you can watch all the colour drain out of my face and my voice get croaker and croaker, and I look closer towards death with every frame over the passage of me having coronavirus. Please get your third shot. Get your fourth shot if you're eligible for it. Get your fifth shot if you're eligible for it. Trust us. 
It is as bad as they say. The virus have, has mutated and the old Omicron sniffle, that has gone, friends. It's either vomiting and nausea and an inability to eat, your throat closing and getting appalling sinusitis, or Ben's particular version, which was fevers, chills, and body aches and pains that were agonizing. All right? It's not good, please. The federal government is recommending that you get boosted, that you wear a mask where you can, and to get ac- and to access antivirals if you're eligible for them. If you are sick, stay home. Fantastic news that the government did listen to unions and reinstated the pandemic payment. That's exactly what they should be doing. In Victoria, government ministers like Marianne Thomas are on record saying, wear a mask, send your kids to school with a mask. It's not mandated, but it is strongly recommended. Clearly, case numbers are growing. It is not something you want to get. And remember, every time you get coronavirus, and unfortunately we live in a world now where people are getting it again and again and again and again, Every time you are rolling the dice on getting long COVID and the long enduring symptoms of the disease, the brain fog, you know, the impact on on cognition, it is a disability category now. Every time you get sick, you increase your likelihood of developing the disability of long COVID. Absolutely. And Van, I want to say also the Nurses Union has called for people to get boosters, wear masks indoors and stay home if you're unwell. Uh, We're seeing large numbers of healthcare workers get sick because, of course, they're literally on the front lines helping people who are ill uh, and they are exposed every day to large numbers and increasingly large numbers of people who are sick. The AMA has called for mask mandates. Now, government seems to be resisting that. Um, They're talking about how many staff are being lost in hospitals. Uh, The union movement has called for workers who can work from home to be allowed to do so and for others to wear masks and socially distance within the workplace. Michelle O'Neill gave a press conference today. Michelle O'Neill, of course, is the president of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, a very staunch comrade and friend of this show, has been on here before with us. She has called for employers to provide rats. so whether they're working from home or working in the office so that we can make sure that people who have symptoms or are unwell are not exposing other people and for employers to pay leave to anyone who has to isolate. And again, Australia has too many people who do not have access to paid leave. We know this will be a big issue in the forthcoming Skills and Jobs Summit. We'll talk about that more in the weeks to come. But people, COVID is here. It's worse. It's getting worse. It will be worse by the time we talk on Sunday and even worse than that by the time we talk again on Wednesday. Please, please wear a mask. Please get boosted. Please be kind to yourself. Be kind to each other. Stay well. Stay safe. Even Albo wore a mask at his press conference today. And you know he doesn't like them. You can see it on his face. He doesn't want to wear it. He's wearing it. And if it's good enough for the Prime Minister, it's good enough for the rest of us. Yep. All right. Um, we're at the wonderful point of the program where I get to very quickly thank all the people who make the program possible by their contributions to buy me a coffee and to help us uh, get the show out to more people, like I said, in a pretty competitive podcast environment. So I'd just like to thank our cadre, at Shane Campbell, Leona Gibbons, someone, at Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7 Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandal Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Herriot, Alexander Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Atlee Archer, Linda Cartwright, Atlee Ann Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Narunga Man, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou. And extending the reach supporters are Stuart Munn, Adrian Valente, uh, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nye, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur, Pauline Bate, Vicky Hanna at Knot, love your work, love yours too, baby, at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, 
someone. Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannum, Bill Collis, Mario Louise, Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliane and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter OC, Linda, Sam Madid, Keith Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Bomegard at Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. You people are superb. And remember, if you don't have the dollars to share the show, not all of us do. I mean, I'm in the arts, as Ben well knows. Um, please, you are helping us if you just recommend the show to friends or share it on your social media. That helps us just as much. Absolutely. And again, send us your stories. If you've joined your union because you listen to this show, let us know. Tell us about what's going on in your workplace. Tell us about how the macro issues are impacting you and your family, your workplace and your community. We love to hear it and we love to be able to share it with the nation. And in fact, we have listeners all around the world. So, you know, get yourself a global audience. Tell us what's going on. And that's the end of the show for this week, the week on Wednesday, Wednesday, the 20th of July, 2022. Thank you so much for listening wherever you are around, around the world. Ben, I love you so much. I miss you so much. I miss you too, my wife. Uh, I will never get used to that word, but it's true. Um, yes. You can see the ring, everybody. You can see the ring on the little video. All right. Love you, darling. I Bye. miss you. Bye. I love you. I love everyone. Bye. Bye.